the news of the day is that we have to have another dinner tonight. So, six o'clock. I didn't eat hardly any breakfast, and I doubt I'll have much lunch. So, <laughs> get all prepared for tonight. Well, that's to be looked forward to. Well, yesterday I left off uh, kind of in the middle of an explanation about Satan and his spirit and what it does. And uh, I I didn't really finish what I wanted to get to with everything, so I want to flash back to that a bit today and cover a little more in those terms. Uh, First of all, again, just for a moment, back to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which talk about how... Satan was originally uh, a brightness and a joy to God, having been created as a high-ranking angel. And God does give us there what he had been. He doesn't describe Michael and Gabriel on the same, or in the same way, uh, but they were all created similarly. So what we read about how he who was brightness and light was is similar to what Michael and Gabriel were as well because they were of equal value uh, in creation. But what he shows there is that that one who had been brightness and light was uh, fell from that and became darkness. So, I don't know exactly how the translators came up with the term Lucifer. Uh, it, it has to do with lightness and brightness and good, uh, but it's the only place it's used in the Bible. But it is in re- reference to Satan before he fell. Now, let's contrast that with what he became. Uh, that name is not used for him anymore. It was just a historical reference. Uh, to what he had been. If you look up Satan, uh, you find words in the uh, Greek and Hebrew uh, that are like opponent or adversary or from the root word attack or accuse. And we find in Revelation 12 that he is the accuser of the brethren. So, Everything about him now, since he fell from the power and the place that he was, is something evil and dark and destructive. He is also called a destroyer, to destroy that which is good. Uh, His kingdom, now instead of being a beautiful world that God had put him to rule over for a period of time, uh, his kingdom is now called Babylon, a worldwide system that is Satan's system, and Babylon means confusion. So here you have the destroyer, the adversary, the opponent, who has a world called confusion. Now, is that a world you want to live in? Uh, No, it is not, by any means. That's not what people on this earth desire. But that's what he has become. So, we don't refer to Christ as the destroyer or as 
even the uh, brightness in the sense that Satan was, but when God created those angels, he made them very much like he and his son were and are. And Michael and Gabriel still are there, but Satan has become darkened. So that is the difference. And we can still call Christ a light bringer. Uh, he is the true light bringer. But we don't, I, I don't think using the word Lucifer is, uh, is appropriate because it was one that was used as a translation from somehow for he who was a bringer of light and no longer is. So to put that name on Christ, I think, uh, might be inappropriate, and it's certainly uncomfortable for me to think of Christ that way in a, in a, in a name that I always thought of as fitting Satan. It just doesn't work for me, and I don't think the definition does either. So, let's continue a bit here. Uh, we left off in Ephesians 6 where we were to be putting on the whole armor of God to protect ourselves uh, with what God can give us against He who would destroy, who would accuse. And that protection is being given to us daily as Satan goes before God to accuse you and me of all kinds of things. Some we have done, and he has a, a good reason to accuse us. On the other hand, he is a false accuser and brings false witness. So God sorts out what Satan accuses us of uh, and does not accept some of it, but some of it he has to accept. Well, well they really did think that. They really did do that. Uh, on the other hand, here's my son sitting right here who died that that might be forgiven. So, it's under the blood of Christ. Uh, you'll have to find something else, Satan. So, he comes back and walks to and fro on the earth and finds something else and goes back next day. Now, that's the scenario that is occurring within the heavens right now every day about you and me. And you know, he is not really all that busy accusing those who are already in his system of Babylon. The ones he's really after are you and me, who are trying to come out of Babylon and be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. So his immediate attention isn't on Job anymore, or on Abraham or Isaac anymore. It's on you and me, who have followed in their footsteps. So, we certainly need the armor of God to protect us against Him, because not only does He accuse us before the Father and the Son in heaven on a daily basis, but He also has His demons down here trying to influence us to give up a godly path. And He is very powerful. Let's go then, not again to Ephesians 6, but to 1 Peter 5. We need to understand, to some degree, our enemy. I don't like to spend a lot of time dwelling on Satan and, and what he does and who he is. I don't like my mind on him that much. I'm trying to avoid him. And yet, on the other hand, even battle generals of the world 
have said you need to know your enemy. Uh, know what you're fighting against. And there are enough scriptures in here that were included so that we might read them and understand them and do understand what we're up against. Now, there's another saying among military people, and it's been used in society in general, is keep your friends close and your enemies even closer. Do you buy that one? I don't. Yes, keep your friends close, but if Satan's the enemy, you don't want him anywhere around. (laughs) Uh, He needs to be gone. Keep him away. The eternal rebuke you, Satan. Go away. Leave me alone. Anyway, let's go to 1 Peter 5. And he says here in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, to the coming of the eternal. We wait. We are to wait patiently, not impatiently, knowing he knows best. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. And, of course, Amos and Joel tell us about the early and latter rain, as does Zechariah. That God is going to uh, take care of us in the long run. Be you also patient and establish uh, your hearts for the coming of the eternal draws near. Which is all good advice, but it's not the chapter I was looking for. Let's go back to four. Yeah, I'm in James 4. I was reading in James 5. I sent you to First Peter, didn't I? Hey, this is really a good start today. I, uh, well, never mind how I got there. But we're in James 4. He says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? So our human nature is there, and the, the friction and the problems we have among ourselves just come from our human nature acted upon by one who is trying to get us to do the works of the flesh. He says, you lust and you don't have, you kill and desire to have and can't obtain, you fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. Or we don't ask the right being, the right place. Well, God says, if you just go on with your human nature and the situation as it is, what is it you want? You want the things that all men want. As I've said before, peace and security and uh, financial success and happy families. That's what everybody wants. But they're going about it the wrong way uh, to get it their way and to get as much as they want, not what a loving God might give them. Now, most Americans and people who think of the American dream want to come and make great wealth. And yet, is that what God wants us to have, is great physical wealth? Wasn't there a prayer given in the Bible where someone said, give me what I need, not what I want, because if you give me too much, I'll forget you, and if you give me too little, I might get discouraged and forget you. So give me just what I need, 
to keep me going the way that I ought to be going. In other words, God knows how much of what we need. We get it all messed up and decide what we want. And then as humans, we go about getting what we want in wrong ways. The people of this world get greedy in the stock market or in Las Vegas or uh, for the Powerball lottery or whatever. They're trying to get rich quick without too much effort. And yet, God says that the labor of a working man or the sleep of a working man is sweet. That we need to work for what we gain and what we have and we will appreciate it more. But we want it given to us by man or by the government, which is men. And that's not the way God says it's to be done. That we're to work for what we have and if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Therefore, he shouldn't be on a welfare program and not work. Just not the way God intended it. But we go about it in different ways, in trying to get what we want, and we don't do it in godly ways as human beings normally. So he says that's why you have fighting and wars, because we're trying, let's say the world, not not you and me particularly, but out in the world, They're trying to gain by climbing up the ladder over someone else in business and corporations or get somebody else's job or steal from each other or whatever. And what does that create? War. So instead he's saying, come and ask me. Don't go about it your way. Come and ask me. You ask and you receive not because you ask amiss. That is, with the wrong attitude, the wrong approach. You're wanting your will to be done, not God's. You, so that you may consume it upon your lusts. We want what we covet, what we lust after. And with that attitude, God is not going to give us what we really want if we're going about it in a wrong way. You adulterers and adulteresses, and that's not just physically, that's speaking spiritually as well. Because we go, instead of he who we're to be faithful to, to the Father and the Son, we go to others to get what we want rather than to them. And that puts us in a form of spiritual adultery and seeking our answers somewhere else. Where would you rather have a blessing from, really? Let's say you put your money in the stock market or a 401k if you have any. And you are concerned constantly about whether the stock market's up or down. Am I rich today or am I poor today? Uh Uh-oh, it's going up. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm having a good day. Next day it drops 400 and yours drops 20%. And it's not such a good day. I was, for a short time, bought one stock for, I don't know, it's been 50, nearly 50 years ago, I guess. And, uh, man, was my first thought in the morning, it's time to go pray? Or was it time to go check and see if the market was open and how I was doing? You, you get zeroed in on some of those things, and that's what makes or breaks your day. 
Or would you rather, and doesn't this sound better, if I go in and I have needs, I have desires, and they're hopefully godly desires, and I can go to God and say, I need an answer for this, for that, uh, help here, my daily bread, whatever. I'll do my part, but would you please help? And then blessings come. And you can be in a thankful mood to God who gave you what you needed instead of worrying about whether Satan's confusing markets are going to go up and down, which is more satisfying. Now, sometimes we might not get from God what we want, but he said it's because our attitude, our approach, our manner isn't good. And he says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. So if we will obey him consistently and look to him, search for him and find him, he says he will turn and bless us. Now, that's the whole overall approach he's given to the church that's been blown apart, is, all right, find your way back to me. And when you do find me, I will turn and I will bless you in ways that you have never comprehended before. That's a promise he makes us. Now, I'd rather be going that direction as fast as I can make myself get there with His help, to receive His blessings in good favor, who can not only impart physical blessings here and now, but eternal life and blessings forevermore. And the stock market can't do that for me. This system can't do that for me. In fact, he says this whole system is about to collapse. If you've got money invested in this world... You have only about this much time left before it is going to become utterly worthless. So if you're counting on college funds for your kids and all that kind of stuff that people put their money in, it's not going to be there. Now you say, well, yeah, I heard that in the 70s too. Uh, yeah, that's true. And I probably thought I'd never get married and have kids. And now I've got grandkids. Uh, but I think God has showed us, and we see the leaves on the trees, and now I see the things happening that I was watching for in the 70s, and they hadn't happened. And I'll go on record and say, when I was in Miami in the 60s, that I began to say and to preach I don't think it's coming in 72 to 75 because I don't see the things happening that the Bible says should happen. I mean, we have the dates here that we think these 19-year cycles might indicate something, and then we learn that the 19-year cycle is not an exact thing anyway. But I did. There's probably no tapes anymore from back then, but uh, I began to look at what's going on in the world and, and what's going on isn't what this book says. Now, these many years later, I look at what's going on and it fits this perfectly. So I know we're close now. There's no, there's no doubt about it in my mind whatsoever. So, if you're depending on something in this world for the future, 
God says he's taken Satan's system down. Now, there's going to be three and a half years of the times of the Gentiles when they will take over. But you know what they're going to do? They're not going to give you all those things that you might want. They're going to give the world poverty and a mark whereby they can actually get some food and eat the ones that are left. And the elitists are going to have everything they want and more. And they're going to give you just enough to keep you active enough to work for them. That's what the book says is going to happen. So if you're counting on anything other than what God's saying here, you're in trouble. Know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Well, it's Satan's world. And your nature is now more satanic than it is godly. It changed there in the Garden of Eden. When they turned against God, their nature turned. And now it is deceitful and desperately wicked. It isn't a mixture of evil, good and evil. It's evil by nature. And it is only by some teaching that your selfish, evil, perverted nature can rise a little bit above that in this world. You can't be friends with the world. It's because it automatically makes you an an enmity or an enemy of God. What is Satan's name? Opponent, adversary, enemy. He who is against God. This world is ungodly. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That's a pretty plain statement. This world out here and Satan's system of confusion is totally against God. So the more you're involved in the world and the things of the world and the entertainment of the world, the the financial system of the world, the less attuned you are to God. Now, ideally, and in the millennium, it's going to be a whole lot different. No big cities. Everybody basically will be involved in an agricultural uh, endeavor of some kind, raising their families on a bigger piece of land with no houses next to each other, as Isaiah 5 says, and not even any fields, field to field. Green belts in between families' farms. And you can raise your children apart from screens and iPads and rock and wrap and all that stuff that is ungodly and isn't like God at all. You know what, though? We're so honed into these things that they're hard to give up. Very hard to give up. And this world will not want to give them up. He tells us, Turn to God and away from the world if you want blessings and you want to quit having war and fighting among yourselves. But if you stay in Satan's system, that's what you're going to have. And when the message goes out around the world that if you would obey God, you could have peace and happiness, but you have to do this, this, and this, and this to gain it, they'll say, oh, no. I'm not going that way. If, it, if that's what I have to do to get it, I'm going to stick to this. I got my little mark and I can get my food. 
and I don't want to go that way. It's just like when you start telling parents that what they need to do to discipline their children uh, to get them to be sweet and respectful and responsive to you. They'd like to have their children sweet and respectful and responsive. They'd like to have them cooperative. They'd like to have them happy and laughing instead of pitching fits. Oh yeah, I want my kid to be that way. Then you start telling them what they have to do to get it that way. Oh no! I want the result, I just don't want the method. So, that's the way the whole world is. We want the way God's kingdom is going to be. We just don't want to do what He says to get there. We want to go ours and Satan's way to get what we want. So that's what James is talking about here. Verse 5, Do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? What is the spirit that dwells in us? The spirit in man. That mind, that mentality, that capacity that God gave us as humans that animals don't have. But it lusts and envies and is selfish. But he gives more grace, wherefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace, mercy to the humble. So he says, you're this way by nature, but God gives you a gift. And he's telling you not to be proud. He hates pride in any form, but he likes humility. And to this man will I look to him who is of a humble and contrite spirit. That's the man God will look to. But he says he resists the proud. And that's what he says right here. And gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, there's something else involved. Submit yourselves therefore to God in humility, saying, okay, I want what you have to give, and I will accept your method of getting there which is your commandments, your statutes, your ways, your way of life. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, he's there, accusing you before God. He's there trying to get you, tempt you to do wrong. And God says, resist all that. Don't put up with it. Get as far from it as you can. And he has control of the world. Whatever you look at out there in society today is basically satanic. He had gotten that kind of control before the flood, where all thought was evil continually, selfish, self-centered. They were in a violent land where back then your selfishness exhibited itself by whoever you didn't like, you killed them. We're still a tad bit more civilized than that, but we're right on the edge right now of people saying, I don't like you, I'm going to kill you. And it's happening in our synagogues, our churches, our schools, wherever, that that is beginning to be the norm. 
it's getting worse. And we're right on the verge of civil war, which the Bible says is going to happen, where anybody you disagree with, you simply shoot them or stab them to death. It's happening among our politicians, and it's going to happen in our populace. That's the kind of world we live in today. A proud world. What does the gay movement say? Gay pride. Pride in what? Perversion? Yeah. But pride is what it's all about. Sports? This is our house. We're proud. You can't beat us in our house. Pride is everywhere. That's what the world operates on. We tell our children, I'm proud of you. No. We're not to be proud proud of our children. We can be well pleased. Now, God the Father of all beings on earth, if anybody was to be proud, could have been proud of His Son. But He said, no, I'm well pleased. So He didn't take it upon Himself to have a proud attitude of, I must be wonderful because I sure raised a wonderful son. No, I'm just well pleased in you, my son. You've done well. So any kind of pride is contrary to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's what he tells us in Jeremiah. He says, if you'll seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. And I will be found of you. So it's a reciprocal thing. We turn to him, and he turns to us. That's what James is saying here. may have been even thinking of that scripture in Jeremiah when he wrote this. Put it in little different words. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He has promised that he will respond. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Eternal, and He shall lift you up. And then he goes on, not to speak evil to one another and, and judge your brother and condemn him and all of those things, and not to judge the law of God and say it's done away, because... It's the key to happiness is the law of God. It's following His ways. So, here in a nutshell, James is telling us we're going about it the wrong way out here in this world. We need to put Satan away, turn to God, and things will get better. So, we have to accept His method if we're going to get the results we're after. And it's the only way that that can happen in a lasting way because Satan's house is divided against itself and it is going to fall. And if you're a part of it, you're going to fall with it. All right. Now let's go to 1 Peter 5. I'm not even joking. Here he's saying pretty much the same thing in verse 6. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. There's another scripture that says something similar to that, that where after you have suffered a while, that you are to be established and comforted. So suffering comes before blessing. And that's what Peter is saying here. He'll exalt you in due time if you humble yourself to him. Bow your knee, bow your head, bow your conduct to God. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Every need, every hope, every dream, every care or need that you have, you lay on him. Because he does care. Your stockbroker doesn't really give a flip, sorry. He wants his commission. But to care about you, not really. Uh, Any part of this society doesn't really care about you. Does McDonald's care about you? No. They'll give you the cheapest, absolute garbage they can serve you to make a profit on it. And if you get cancer and die, no skin off their nose, their corporate line is good. It's, it's that way no matter what you look at. But God does care for you. He loved, the, he loved the whole world so much He sent His only begotten Son that we may not perish, but have everlasting life. So He means it here. Do you believe Him? Do you believe Him enough These aren't just words. Do you believe him enough to go on your knees before your God and cast all your cares on him, knowing full well with all your heart that he loves you and will do what's best for you? And he said in a verse before uh, that you may have to suffer for a while. And we do, don't we? Because we learn from the things that we suffer, just like Christ did. So he lets us suffer on purpose that we might learn. And then as we learn, he removes the chastening, the suffering, the pain, the trials and tribulations. So cast your care on him. Verse 8, be sober. Uh, Be vigilant. Not just sort of tiptoeing through the tulips, but vigilant. Because your adversary... That uses that name. The devil, accuser, adversary, the devil. As a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. Now, he may not be able to devour everybody. He can't. But he seeks those whom he can. Now, he's pretty well devoured all the people of the world. They're in his system. They're part of it. They're ungodly. So he is looking through the church, trying to pick off those that he might devour. That's his goal. That's his purpose. He's got the rest of the world in his pocket. Why should he be concerned with them? It's you and me he's after. As a roaring lion. Now, if you've been out in the wilds of nature and you hear a lion roar, you get a certain feeling up your spine. 
I've experienced it. I know what it's like. I had an elephant roar one time and raise her trunk and head for my car. And I hit the gas. And I saw a picture of another car in one of the places where you stay that have big fences around them that didn't hit the gas, and it had two big holes through the doors where the tusks had gone through, and then the top was all smashed in where the hoof had landed. Or the toe, not a hoof, really. So there's reason to be concerned. And when he compares Satan to a roaring lion out hunting whom he may devour... You better take it seriously. Knowing that that's what he's doing and that you had better humble yourselves before God because God has what? Power over Satan. Something you don't as a human being have. If human beings had power over Satan, do you think this world would look like it does today? No. It's his world and everybody's pretty much doing his bidding and it's a war, world full of wars and privation and starvation and sickness, diseases, as he's gotten a stronger and stronger hold. When I was a kid, you hardly ever heard of cancer. Diabetes was almost unheard of. Heart disease was rare. If people didn't die in a car wreck, they lived to be old. Most of them. Not anymore. There are lots of people with cancer, heart disease, and diabetes, all three, and other things. We're a sick and dying generation because Satan has gotten a tighter and tighter grip on the world around us. So this is good advice here. He's a roaring lion whom resists steadfast in the faith, that is, trust in God. Because he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. You see, Satan has a problem. He sees the light of God in God's people. The converted ones that are begotten of his spirit. He sees that and he hates it. He goes to God and accuses us trying to get God to kick us away. That's the purpose of the accusation, is get God to reject us and make us miserable and left alone, depressed, and pulled away from God so that he can have his way with us. That's what he's trying to get accomplished. So he goes to God daily, accusing us and trying to get God to shove us away. And God says, don't do that, draw near to me and resist the devil... But, but Satan's problem is this. He sees the light of God in you, and he hates it. He wants to destroy you, and yet the light shining in his eyes from God's Spirit in you, he can't handle. He doesn't like. You don't like it in the middle of a dark night, and somebody with really, really bright lights won't dim them. And that is irritating, to have that light shining in your eyes when you need to see. And the light of God in us 
hurts his eyes. He wants to put it out, but it bothers him. And the more of it that is there, and the brighter it gets, it comes to the point he can't stand it, and he will flee from you. That's what he's saying here. You resist him, you turn to God, you get more of God's Spirit, and Satan will flee from that. How it must hurt him in some ways to even go to God's throne, the source of light, is our accuser. He has to get in the brightness of that light of the Father and the Son to go and accuse us. Now, he will withstand that because he hates us so much that he will put up with it in order to go try to get us destroyed. See what he does? Why is he so jealous of us? Because he wanted to be God, and he attacked God and tried to take over and was cast down, and he can't be God, and he is frustrated up to here. And he knows the plan of God that we will someday be made spirit and be on the same plane and level as God, which is what he wanted. And he is so absolutely green with jealousy that he is doing everything he can to get rid of us as a roaring lion, trying to destroy, to chew, to kill. So understand your enemy. He is implacable. He is relentless. He wants you dead, spiritually dead especially. It must just chafe him to the core to know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Rahab, and others are waiting in the ground to be changed at the last trump. They're already safe in the arms of God. And he can't do anything with them. The dead know nothing and he can't influence them. So, that just makes him even angrier to come after those that he still can reach. Why is it pleasant to God to see the death of his saints? Because indeed, they are his saints, and they have been faithful up to the time of their death. So if they die faithful, they made it. They'll be in the kingdom of God. So to him, that's just a storage spot until he reactivates the spirit in man and changes it into the spirit of God. So to him, hey, old Bill there just died faithful to me. There's another one. Ka-ching, to go under the 144,000 as the bride of Christ. So that's sweet to him. Now to us, death is never very sweet. It's, uh, it's an enemy to be destroyed. But God is going to destroy it in the resurrection, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, last verse. So, to him, hey, I got another one in safekeeping. And to him, time is nothing, and that person will come up in an instant, uh, a thousand years is a day to God. But to you and me, a year, a day is 
a long time, but a thousand years is a really long time. (laughs) So he looks at it differently than we do. But he wants us in his kingdom. So when we die faithful, he's happy with that. All right. Let's go to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. Uh, verse 18. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So this whole plan is is working. We sinned, he came, he died for us, and now he is the mediator of our salvation, and he can cause it to happen. And it's the same power by which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. And then he goes on to explain that them coming through that water alive is a symbolism of baptism for us, whereby we come to a new life with the Spirit of God. Now, he gives us a little insight here into what has happened with Satan. God has restrained Satan to one degree or another throughout history uh, because he would kill us all and mankind would not have survived this long if he had not. Now, God himself decided to destroy almost all of mankind at one point because Satan had influenced the spirit in man so strongly the man wasn't worth saving in his, the condition that he had reached. So God restrained Satan, obviously, in some form there, and he had imprisoned or chained some of the demons so that they could not continue what they had been doing to man during that period of time and caused the destruction of all flesh. Now, God himself considered it. After what Satan had done to man, he considered wiping man out. I'm done. But he says, no. Son, I think you and I can fix this. We can do it. So let's save some of them and let's start over. And then it got bad again. So he says, all right, let's go down and confuse their languages so that they can't come to our throne and take over, which is what Satan was going to try to do with man. Now we look at man trying to go out into space and trying to get to the place they could colonize Mars and do all kinds of things to try to get to where God is. And they all have immortality in mind. We'll make new organs for you and and all these things that they're trying to do to give us eternal life. So they're asking for what you and I are here to achieve. But they're going about it by a wrong means that's going to turn on them. They're going to have all these robots as servants. And those robots are going to turn and become enemies. And Joel says they're going to be leaping through the windows and climbing tall buildings, if you will, and indestructible. 
to destroy mankind. So the technology that God, you know, God is the greatest technician there is. And all the technician, uh, technical knowledge and ability he has, he uses to create beautiful things that are good for his universe and those in his universe. Now, Satan has high technical ability as well. But everything that he develops, he turns toward the destruction of man. Whole different attitude. And man's caught in the middle, having a nature like Satan's, and the spirit in man has been impacted by Satan so much that they tend to do it his way. So any good technology is TV or a, a cell phone bad by nature? Probably not. But it's the use to which it is put that is bad. So man goes Satan's way, the way of destruction and confusion. And here we are to go the other way. So he held back Satan, restrained him to some degree there. It doesn't give us much detail. I don't know exactly what happened. But it sounds like from what Peter said that he, he chained them. He wouldn't let them continue what they were doing. And he gave them a lecture. <laughs> he preached to them and said, you know, you could repent. You could change. Nah. And probably they were loosed again. And have been loose ever since. So that's what's going on. Ephesians 2. And let's go to verse uh, 2. So he says, well, let's start in verse 1. You he has quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were essentially dead to God when we were out in this world. Uh, none of the physical life we had or the power in our minds from the spirit in man was of any effect. We were spiritually worthless. Dead is worthless. Can't accomplish anything. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. So we were like the rest of the world, and the world is, working, is walking according to the prince of the power of the air. Therefore, I think as I said earlier, in a different way, everything you see out here in the world, everything that is available or visible, you need to have a very strong caution against whatever it is. Even Satan can transform himself and his ministers as angels of light. He can make things look good to you. And I think I said it yesterday, if it were possible, even the very elect will be deceived by what's coming. He is going to make it look so good He's going to take the world into captivity. God is going to allow him to kill over 90% of the population of the earth. And in the meantime, his system is going to be so appealing to the world because of what? Lying signs and wonders that appear that people are being healed and things are getting better. And if you take this mark, you can eat. 
And he's just going to make it look so good. Like, what does God do? What does Satan do? He counterfeits what God has planned. God plans a beautiful 7,000 year, I mean 1,000 year period of peace on earth. So, Satan offers the same thing. But with totally different methods. And it won't turn out that way. You know that, I know that. So he has set up the system, the culture of the world. Prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. So the people of this world are disobedient to God and he works through them. So be suspect of everything. Of whom we also had our conduct in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. <coughs> Just another scripture to show that the human mind and nature and spirit, once pulled away from God by Satan in the Garden of Eden, has encompassed us to the point that we have been the children of wrath ever since. You've got to swim up current against that. That's a tough one. But there is hope. We won't get to that much today, but we'll get there. Revelation 13. Uh, there's some scriptures here that I, I guess I just, just introduced, but I want to go back and read a little bit. Uh, Revelation 13, uh, beginning in verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise out of the sea, sea symbolic of the people, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And then he goes on down to describe those and how they have characteristics of lions and leopards and bears and dragons. And they gave uh, great authority and power to the beast. And they caused, end of verse 3 is where I'm headed for, all the world wondered after the beast. Verse 4, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And they have dominion for 42 months, it says there in verse 5. This is going to be a very, very powerful thing that Satan does. You don't see it. I mean, you see uh, degradation and deterioration of everything around us right now. But out of that, and the confusion that he has created, when man gets to the point... The war occurs, America is destroyed, and they have created utter confusion. Then suddenly, on the scene is going to come these two lambs, it appears, and they're going to be given great power to do signs and wonders and miracles, and the whole world is going to stand in absolute awe. Now, God is going to do signs and wonders and plagues through His witnesses. But this is going to come in such a way and in such drama that the whole world is going to be taken in by it. And you too, 
if you're not thinking and turning to God and having His Spirit to see the difference. And if they come, and it's not according to this testimony in this book, don't believe it. We have this to fall back on. You better believe and know and understand the way of God and the will of God and the laws of God. Because that's what's going to be the difference between you following the true God and the greater miracles in some respects that the the beast and the false prophet will do. Let's go to Hebrews 2 for a moment. Hebrews 2. And here, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. God has given Satan the power of death. He is going to kill over 90% of the people on the earth. God's going to let him do the dirty work the same way he did with Job and others. But Christ is stronger than that and has overcome him. And he told us to take heart because he has overcome the world. So he can overcome he who has the power of death. What does Christ have that Satan doesn't have? Power of life. Not death, the power of life. And death is an enemy. And we are victorious over it in the resurrection. So look to who, he who can give you life, not death. Now let's see a little bit uh, right here in closing. Uh, a couple more things about Satan and what is in the future. In chapter 12, there's a wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and had a crown of twelve stars. Now here's a woman, the church, that is going to be clothed with the sun. Who has, whose face shines like the sun in its full glory? Christ himself. So this is symbol, symbolic of the woman. Twelve stars, twelve tribes, twelve thousand from each tribe, one hundred forty-four thousand. The bride of Christ. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. Is that not exactly where we are right now? Travailing in pain to be delivered. I've never been in birth pain. I've observed it, but I've never experienced it. So I have no idea what you girls go through, truly. But it isn't fun. I I mean, would anybody vote for fun on that one? I I doubt it. (laughs) So we're going through a serious hard time. But he's telling us here what's going to happen. Here's the problem, though. There appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. And he drew a third of the stars, the demons, 
the angels of heaven at the time, and cast them to the earth. And he stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, wasn't he there to destroy Christ after he was born? Didn't Herod hear that? I, I think that that expectancy we've been looking at of a Messiah, a deliverer, being born has occurred. And his advisors told him that. So Satan inspired him to say, kill all the boy babies. Get them all. We got to kill the Savior from the time he's born. So it's already happened. But is Satan not going to again fight Christ? And when Christ is begotten and born in us, is he not going to destroy, try to destroy Christ and us? That's what he's talking about. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So a direct uh, type of Christ here. Now, he is overseeing us, and he's told us throughout the Psalms and other places, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, wherever you go, that he has made us a refuge in Zion that we are to go to to protect us from this one who would kill us all and who would kill Christ if he could. She fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days, twelve sixty three and a half years. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. So just as the church is about to go to a place of refuge, Satan sees that, and he is going to attack God and his throne and another attempt to take over. And if he could take over there, then he could simply wipe us all out. <coughs> he was cast out. That great dragon, the old serpent called the devil and Satan. Not brightness, not light, not Lucifer. The devil, Satan, the destroyer. The dragon. Which deceives the whole world. <coughs> he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So God casts him right back down here when he tries to take over this time. And it says, The accused of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. God has put up with day and night Satan yammering about us for quite some time now. And I think he must really be tired of that. So pray. Thy kingdom come soon to give yourself and us relief. God needs relief too from Satan. He, I mean, that is a defilement of his throne that he has allowed for our sakes. But he's only going to put up with it so long. And he's going to remove us and protect us and he's going to protect his throne from that attack. So he cast us down. He cast Satan down here, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. It's the only way you can 
beat Satan is by the blood of the Lamb. And the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives to the death, willing to die for the one who died for us. We have to be willing to go that far. And he comes with great wrath, knowing he has but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. We bring forth Christ in our lives. And that he does not want. He wants it destroyed. And she was given two wings of an eagle that she might be taken to Zion and protected there for three and a half years. And his army that he sends is destroyed. So what does he do? He goes after the remnant of her seed, the ones left behind that aren't taken to the place of safety and refuge. That would be those Laodiceans, anybody in the church of God, who did not repair the damage and the breach between them and God and turn to God with their whole heart are going to be left behind, and that's over 90%. And he will make war and kill them. They will die in martyrdom or by through Satan in the Great Tribulation. Zechariah tells us that about a third of them will repent before they're killed. Now, I'm almost done here. Let's go back to Revelation 20. And see that God is going to take care of this problem. He's going to cast him down. He's going to persecute and kill 90% of the church. 10% will be saved to build the temple and to do the final work of God. So, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. So, the destruction and everything that we've seen and the mess that we see now and the destruction that is about to come is going to be put to a halt. Christ will intervene lest no flesh should be saved alive. And he will take Satan and chain him away where he can't influence anybody for a thousand years. Won't that be a glorious day? That's what's pictured by that goat that's sent out into the wilderness. Solitary confinement. He can't influence anybody, can't be around anybody, is put away for a thousand years. And then he saw thrones and those that had been killed for the sake of God and had not received the mark of the beast on their foreheads or in their hands. That would be the 144,000. Those who had been protected and those who were uh, lying in their graves awaiting the first resurrection. They're the ones who live and reign with Christ a thousand years. These are the first fruits, 144,000 of them. <clears throat> so during that thousand years, Satan's bound, and you and I will rule with Christ over a world that has a rod of iron, but with love and mercy and kindness, and everybody will live in security and happiness and peace for a thousand years.
Now, God's method works. If we will follow His way, we'll be part of that and of a true Sabbath of rest. A day is as a thousand years. Weekly Sabbath pictures the thousand years of rest. Why does Satan hate the Sabbath so much? Because he wants the world to swallow that his Sunday keeping and Christmas and Easter will produce peace in his kingdom that he is bringing. And he's deceiving us into thinking he'll have a thousand years of it, but he won't. True Sabbath pictures the true millennium of God. We keep it every week to remind us of the rest that we are to have from the terrible things in this world. And all that you, the stresses and the problems of employment and everything that you go through all week long. (sighs) Here's a day, every seventh day, that I can put that out of my mind, relax and rest, seek God. It's what it's for. Is a tiny microcosm of the world tomorrow. And very, very few people have the knowledge of that. And the rest of the dead don't live till a thousand years is over, and he will be released for a short time at that time. Uh, we're out of time, so I won't go there, but we're going to see something. Instead of talking about Satan next time, let's talk about something prettier than that.